Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast. This episode will focus on the second half of The Mummy from 1959 starring Christopher Lee. As this is the second of two parts on this film, it is recommended that you listen to the first part if you have not already done so. Put simply, there was too much to talk about in this film, and so it was necessary to split it into two episodes. In terms of the layout, first I shall give a little background information on the film. Then I shall go over the historical accuracy of the second half of the film. And finally, I shall review the second half, and give my overall opinions on the film as a whole. Right. Carice, the mummy, has risen, and at this point in the film, has already killed Stephen Banning, the father of our hero. Let us prepare ourselves for more attacks from Carice and his master, Mehemet Bey. Let us prepare to fight the mummy. As mentioned last week, this is the first of the Hammer Horror Mummy movies. Although this film is largely based on The Mummy from 1932, it takes a lot of inspiration from The Mummy movies from the 1940s, with most of the characters being brought back from those films with new cast members. Christopher Lee plays the Mummy Carice, Peter Cushing plays our hero, John Banning, and Isabel is played by Yvonne Fernau. There are a few interesting stories about this film, and weirdly, a lot of them seem to be based around accidental injuries to Christopher Lee. At several points in the film, he bursts through doors, and one of these was accidentally bolted, leading to him dislocating his shoulder. In another scene, Peter Cushing's character shoots Christopher Lee several times with a shotgun. The mini-explosives attached to Christopher Lee to replicate the bullets hitting him were slightly too powerful and left burn marks on his skin. The final point I would like to raise is that in the pre-release poster, you can see the light shining through several holes in the mummy's torso. To replicate this, 
Peter Cushing suggested that he stab the mummy with a spear during one of the fight scenes. The director, Terence Fisher, took this idea on board and we see the scene about an hour and five minutes into the film. Fortunately, at this part, Christopher Lee did not get injured here, although if I was him, I would have probably been pretty scared given how bad his luck had been up until this point. Although, in fairness, the idea of Christopher Lee being scared seems weirdly alien to me. Now it is time for the section on the historical accuracy of the film. The first thing to note here is that at several points in the film, we see Mohammed Bey, the villain, praying to a statue of the great god Karnak. As mentioned in last episode, Karnak is a temple complex, not a god, and the statue he is praying to more resembles the god Set, though with shorter than normal ears. As a god of war, chaos and storms, Set would be an appropriate god for the villains to worship here. This is especially true as in two of the most famous Egyptian myths, the Osiris myth and the contendings of Set and Horus, he does play the antagonist. If you are not aware of these myths, I would recommend looking them up, as for a modern audience, they are bizarre, entertaining, and incredibly memorable. Although, if you have children, maybe read them yourselves first, as some of the themes in them, especially the contendings of Set and Horus, are quite adult. The next scene worth talking about in this section focuses largely on ethics, and in my mind, it is the most interesting scene, not just in this film, but every mummy movie up until this point. Shortly after Carice, the mummy has made an attempt on John Banning's life, John pays a neighbourly visit to Mohammed Bey, the main villain in the film, and the man who controls Carice. When John Banning tells Mohammed Bey that he is an archaeologist, they have a conversation about the ethics of archaeology. Mehmet Bey makes the case that by opening the tombs of those long dead, archaeologists are performing acts of desecration, as such tombs were supposed to remain closed for all time. He goes on to talk with disdain about archaeologists removing the treasures and even the bodies from tombs and taking them to museums halfway around the world to be gawked at by thousands of people. Essentially, his argument here is that the archaeologist is the intruder in the tomb, and he goes on to ask John Banning how he can live with his conscience. In response, John Banning points out that if these tombs were not opened, the history of Egypt, and even the world, would have long been forgotten. He then goes on to say that it does not trouble his conscience as it is just his job. Such scenes, to a point, are present in previous mummy movies. However, in films such as The Mummy's Hand, the argument is not so much about the ethics of desecrating tombs, but more an almost Frankenstein-esque approach about not messing with nature. For instance, in that film, the main villain, Andotep, tells Petrie, there are some things in science that should be brought to light. There are other things that should be left alone. Petrie is then killed by the mummy, showing that the mummy is the example that should be left alone. In other instances, such as in The Mummy's Ghost and Curse, the villains are made out to be in the wrong for wanting to take the mummies back to their own tombs in Egypt. However, 
The scene here in The Mummy from 1959 is different. The hero, John Banning, is shown as flawed and arrogant in his views, whilst Mehmet Bang here is shown as having a point. John Banning's brashness at brushing aside Mehmet Bey's concerns are presented deliberately in this film as arrogant and ignorant. John Banning then becomes even more ignorant when he starts talking about the god Karnak. Although, in reality, Karnak is not a god, as I have stated multiple times by this point, it needs to be remembered that in this film he is. John Banning states that Karnak was a primitive god and that his followers must be of remarkably low intelligence. It is fair to state that there are subtle hints he is saying this to get under Mehmet Bey's skin, as Mehmet Bey is a follower of the god Karnak. But at the same time, Mehmet Bey is deliberately shown as correct when he calls John Banning ignorant and intolerant. It does need to be remembered that Mehmet Bey is responsible for multiple deaths in this film, and so does remain the rightful villain here. But in this one scene, he is deliberately and by a modern viewpoint, is correctly shown to be in the right. It is also possible that this scene shows that there were changing perceptions of archaeology and the treatment of the dead at this time. In fact, there is other evidence outside of the film to suggest this. Beginning in the 1930s, 46 articles were published about the protection of sites and monuments. In 1970, this led to laws being passed relating to tomb robbery, and the ownership of antiques. I won't go into this too much more, but if you want to learn more, please look up the UNESCO Conference of 1970. Essentially, after this point, in order to excavate, the proper permits were needed and museums could only accept artefacts that had proper documentation to prove their legality. Therefore, it could be that in 1959 these ideas were becoming popularised. This scene is set in 1898, and so it almost comes off as an argument between the old and the new. John Banning is an old-fashioned hero with old-fashioned ideas, whilst Mohammed Bey's ideas are more modern. When John Banning begins to leave Mohammed Bey's house, he sees the seal of Ananka's tomb on the side and studies it. Mohammed Bey tells him that it comes from the 19th dynasty. Earlier in the film, it is stated that Ananka lived 4,000 years ago. If she was 4,000 years old, then she would have actually lived roughly in about the 11th dynasty, whilst the 19th dynasty dates to about 1,300 to 1,200 BCE-ish. Therefore, overall, the actual history presented in the second half of the film is pretty minimal. However, the arguments in the film about the ethics of archaeology are actually incredibly relevant and important even today. Now it is time for the review section of this episode. Here I will say what I liked and disliked about the last half of this film, and then just give my overall impressions on the entire film as well. Firstly, I shall go over the parts I liked. There are a couple of scenes in this film where the mummy bursts through doors and the doors actually do look quite solid for a film of this age. This is a good way of showing the power of the mummy. Further, 
The last time he does so, we watch the mummy burst through the door from over his shoulder, and then he quickly grabs a shotgun out of John Banning's hands. This was well done and shows the speed of the mummy. It makes it clear that John Banning did not have a chance to react. I also like the inspector in the film. Very often, such characters just come off as frustratingly foolish, and this was not the case here. When John Banning explains about the mummy, the inspector does not believe him. However, there are then several short scenes where he interviews various people who have interacted with the mummy. He notices that their stories have consistencies. Over time, you slowly see the inspector become more accepting of the idea, but he always remains a little bit cynical. Towards the end of the film, the inspector tells John not to approach Mehmet Bey. John, of course, does visit him, and the inspector reveals that he did not want him to do that because now they have to face Mehmet Bey and Carice unprepared. This shows that the inspector remains level-headed and patient throughout, whilst John Banning is brash. I love this, as not only is this how the inspector should be, but it also means that John Banning is a flawed hero, which is far more interesting. As is unsurprising, I love the scene mentioned during the historical accuracy section of this episode, when John Banning and Mehmet Bey debate the ethics of archaeology. I enjoyed that although Mehmet Bey is portrayed as in the right here, there are always gentle reminders of the terrible things he has done, especially when it comes to the murder of John Banning's father. Ultimately, Mehmet Bey has some legitimate complaints and motives, but he also goes too far in trying to achieve his goals. Further, John Banning coming off as arrogant once again shows that he is a flawed hero. Neither the hero nor the villain are entirely good or evil, and this is actually quite refreshing. In general, because of scenes like this, although the film is still very trope-heavy, these tropes have been edited, which effectively brings modern values into the film. Well, 1950s values anyway. At the end of the film, Carice carries Isabel into the bog where they begin to sink. No one can follow them, as this would mean certain death. This is taken directly from the mummy's ghost. As mentioned in part one for this film, the mummy actually wins as he sinks into the swamp, holding Ananka, preserving them both for an eternity. I felt that because of this, there was a genuine feeling that the mummy could win again. However, the ending has been changed to make it into a more happy ending. I personally really like this as there was a little bit of fret here. Once again, we have a trope from one of these earlier films that has been effectively edited. Now I shall move on to the areas that I did not feel worked so well. Firstly, about 54 minutes into the film, there is a flashback scene where we watch a Stephen Banning, that's John Banning's father, went insane as he saw the mummy. This scene was done from Stephen Banning's perspective. Then we watch as Mehmet Bey enters the tomb, hides the mummy and steals a scroll of life. This scene is mixed. It was interesting seeing the events from Stephen Banning's perspective, but Mehmet Bey's part here makes little sense. There were quite a few people at the entrance of the tomb. 
there would have been no way for him to enter the tomb, and there certainly would not have been a chance for him to leave stealing items. Further, although I have viewed many of the reused tropes in this film as a bit of a love letter to the former Mummy movies, I will admit I rolled my eyes a bit at Isabel, the heroine, being the exact image of a Nanka once again. I personally feel that this trope has been done to death by this point, and it is more of a cliché. However, there were at least some positive points to this. Firstly, when Carice sees her, Christopher Lee does an excellent job of acting using just his eyes. You can see the visible emotional pain as he looks upon her, and the longing for his beloved whom he lost so many thousands of years ago. I found this really effective, and I felt a lot of sympathy towards Carice here. I can also appreciate that the love story here makes complete sense, and they avoided the cliché of the main villain who controls Carice instantly falling in love with the heroine the moment he sees her. For me at least, this is a cliché that has never worked, and is often the point where these films start to become a bit of a mess. Finally, at the beginning of the film, we realise that John Banning has injured his leg, and throughout the film he walks with a limp. I felt that this was not well utilised, as it was never shown to be a weakness. There could have been some chance of real tension having the mummy chasing John whilst John desperately tries to limp away. Overall, however, in my opinion, this is the best mummy movie up until this point. Contemporary reviews for this film were mixed to positive and did talk about the film simply rehashing former mummy movies. In large part, this is accurate, but I feel that the tropes have been successfully edited to bring them into the present day, or at least the late 1950s anyway, as there are inevitably things that have not aged well, as will always be the case with these old films. Also, whilst they did include many tropes from these films, I feel that many of the clichés, such as the main villain instantly falling in love with the heroine, have rightly been left out. Modern reviews have been far more favourable towards this film, with much of the credit going towards Christopher Lee's performance. I could not agree more. For most of the film, Christopher Lee is stripped of his ability to speak, meaning that it is only the flashback scene that you hear his deep, charismatic voice. However, throughout the film, you also know what the mummy is thinking purely because of his body language and because of the emotion shown in his eyes. I feel that this is one of the performances that shows what an incredible actor he was. While some of the reviews have criticised the other actors in the film, I personally thought that for the most part, Peter Cushing was excellent. He is very consistent at portraying his character's strengths and weaknesses. He comes off as flawed and a product of his time. He is frequently frustrating, but I still found myself rooting for him. Do not get me wrong, for a modern audience, this film is more charming and goofy than scary. However, I feel there is also enough here to appreciate the performances, and it is easy to see what the film was trying to do. Overall, as is probably unsurprising, I love this film. Just a note before finishing. On Thursday, there will be a bonus episode on the film The Pharaoh's Curse from 1957. 
This is a feature-length mummy movie, which was not produced by either Universal Pictures or Hammer Horror Productions. Then, as normal, on Monday we will arrive in 1964 with The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, the second of the Hammer Horror mummy movies. Thank you very much for listening, and please think about subscribing if you would be interested in hearing more from this podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.